please meet me in Romans chapter 14. Romans chapter 14, verse 19, will be our primary text that you just uh, heard read. My name is Jason. I serve as one of the elders here at Church in the Square. Grateful to continue in this uh, study of this letter today. And I was actually out for a run on Monday, and my wife called me, and she said, "Um, hey, about your sermon yesterday. And then she said, oh, wait, you're on a run. We can talk later. And I said, well, we can, we can talk now. Um, you can't leave that hanging. And she said, I think you really need to take a lot more time than what you ended on uh, last Sunday. And uh, if you recall, we ended the message with kind of an off-the-cuff thought that perhaps was helpful, but likely was really underdeveloped, even though uh, back in Romans chapter 12 in January, we considered it a little bit more particularly. Um, But it's this idea that we are commanded to always forgive, but not always to reconcile. That we are commanded always to forgive, but not always to reconcile. And so today, I'd like to settle in that idea a little bit more, because it seems pretty clear that we need to wrestle with that uh, more. And to be straight up with you, I think I I need to let you in on a little secret. there are times when preachers get up here and like one of the narratives that goes on is here are lessons that we've learned along the way and now I am offering them to you because you need to learn them as well. That's not true ever. It's almost always like, here's what God's word says, let's try to figure that out together. It's very misleading because this is a monologue kind of experience, I get that. But this is a community, not not a teaching event right? And so my, my responsibility and our elders' responsibility is to say, hey, here's what God's word says. Um, how do we live this out together? Um, I have never felt that more than in this subject, or I should say I haven't felt it as much uh, so acutely as I have recently as it is with this idea of forgiveness. Um, and so I just want to share with you, this is definitely one of those messages. Here's what God's word says. We need to grow up in this together. Um, Having tracked with Jesus for a long time, there's a lot of things I've heard a lot. Uh, forgiveness, regretfully, is not something that we consider all that deeply. And, and so I think that's probably why it became an off-the-handed comment at the end of last week's sermon. Hey, by the way, you're always supposed to forgive but not always reconcile. All right, have a great brunch, right? <laughs> we'll see you next week. And so by God's grace, I have a very wise wife and other colleagues and folks who said, hey, you need to settle in that a little bit more. Um, And so by God's grace, that's what we'll do today. It'll be a little bit of a tangent launching off from Romans 14, verse 19. Um, In his recent book, Pastor Tim Keller wrote on the subject of forgiveness. He observed that society has become quite disenchanted with the idea of forgiveness. While at the same time, the church has become almost militant about forgiveness. Here's what I mean. uh, Keller quotes from author... uh, Delia Owens, in her book, Where the Crawdads Sing, perhaps you read that a couple of summers ago, Um, she summarizes sort of our broad mistaste, or distaste rather, with uh, forgiveness when she asks this simple question, or rather one of her characters does, why should the injured, the still bleeding, bear the onus of forgiveness? And I think her sentiment, that, that idea is carried by many of us, and I think shared by many of us, forgiving someone who has deeply wronged us putting responsibility on me to do anything when someone has sinned against me, they are the ones who did something wrong, feels not just unhelpful, but in many times very harmful. At the same time that I think there's been this sort of growing cultural distaste, the church is sort of doubling down 
on forgiveness without very much thought about it. In places like the recent Me Too movement and the racial reckoning that really sort of was a, a rehashing of a lot of old wounds and of a realization of some sins of our country that we still have not contended with. It seems like the way that the Christian church has responded to this is just constantly talking about forgiveness in a kind of forgive and forget kind of way. And in fact, through those cultural movements, we've heard many countless stories coming out from congregations who are being forced to forgive church leaders while those in positions of power do not give up their positions of power. Counselor Diane Langberg, I think, corrected this unbiblical idea very well in a tweet recently when she said, it misrepresents God when we tell victims of atrocity, life-changing abuse, to simply forgive and forget. Forgiveness of any wrong, let alone life-shattering one, let alone a life-shattering one, is never just do it task. See, while some of us maybe have this growing distaste Others of us are in communities where we're just constantly being told, we got to forgive, you got to forgive, you got to forgive, you got to forgive. Perhaps we don't understand what forgiveness actually is. Keller calls this unconditional forgiveness. In other words, it's kind of forgiveness with no justice. I think what the wider culture then loathes and what the church often employs is a brand of forgiveness which suggests you not only could but should have peace even without justice that you should have peace even without any conversation about what it looks like to seek justice. If nothing else, I think what this reveals is we need to understand forgiveness more deeply. We need to understand what it is that Paul is saying here in Romans chapter 14, verse 19, when he says to pursue what makes for peace. More literally, he's saying be about the things or pursue the things of peace. This is who you are. You go after the things that make for peace. So that's what I'd like to talk about today. I want to talk about the multifaceted nature of pursuing peace, particularly in relationships. If you remember last week, we looked at that through the cross, we have peace with God, we have peace within or with ourselves, and we can have peace with others. And it's that third movement that I think we did not give enough time to last week. And so I want to reflect on the three primary ways that the Bible talks about seeking peace or making peace or pursuing peace, which is forgiveness, reconciliation, and restoration. Forgiveness, reconciliation, and restoration. And what I hope is that this will give us a sort of a more biblical or more gospel-centered imagination for what it is that we do when we pursue peace. And so that's how we'll organize our time. We'll look at forgiveness, then we'll look at reconciliation, and then we will look at restoration. And hopefully this will give us a handle to understand where are we in processes with our relationships as it relates to pursuing peace, where ought we be, uh, as people of God, and, and where is it that we can say, I've done enough, and I can have peace even by stepping away, and I think the scriptures give us a way of navigating that, and so that's how I would like to be helpful and how I want to learn with you all this morning, so let's pray and ask for God's help. What's up, Q? Good morning, buddy. Heavenly Father, we need your help in this. I, I need your help. Because this is not just a concept to us. Um, I have names in my head and heart right now where I need, uh, I need your Holy Spirit to help me to learn the lesson of forgiveness and reconciliation and restoration and to no longer, as Paul has written earlier, be conformed to the patterns of the world as it relates to seeking peace. 
but to be transformed by the renewal of our minds. And so, Father, I know that I'm not alone in this. Uh, we all have names that come to mind when we think about forgiveness, and reconciliation and restoration and seeking peace. And so would you be kind to us as you always are? Where we need correction, would you speak clearly and lovingly to us? Where we need comfort, would you wash away shame? And would you clean us of a guilty conscience? And would you draw near to us to be a very present help in time of trouble? You're a really, really good God. Help us to be a people who trust you more as a result of our time together, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, perhaps one of Jesus' most compelling stories of forgiveness is found in Matthew 18. So if you would please meet me, Matthew 18, verse 23. So if you're in Romans, turn to the left. Uh, Matthew's the first gospel account. Um, if you get into like Zechariah and Malachi, go back to the right. Matthew 18, verse 23. Um, the Apostle Peter has just asked Jesus, uh, how many times should I forgive somebody? Which is a great question. Um, and if you're reading the Bible for the first time, you sort of lean in. I can't wait to hear this answer. Um, and he's like, seven? And another's like, that seems like a lot, right? And I would like, could you bring it down? And Jesus, you know, says, if you're familiar with the story, 70 times seven. In other words, what he's saying is you're always supposed to forgive. This isn't a math problem. Jesus is giving a big number to suggest this is always meant to be the disposition of our hearts. And then as a response, he tells this story. A servant owned, uh, or rather owed a master, an insurmountable debt. And because he didn't have enough money uh, to pay that debt, the master orders that not only he and his family, but all of his possessions be sold in order to make the master even or to, to make him full in his debt. But then the servant begs for forgiveness to the master. And Jesus says in verse 27 that he forgave him the debt. And in the next scene, uh, the servant found a fellow servant who owed him a much smaller amount of money. And that, that servant, the second servant, then begs this first servant for mercy in just the exact same way. But instead of extending the forgiveness that he had received, this first servant says this in verse 30, that, or rather Matthew tells us that he refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. Well, the master finds out how this first servant behaved so mercilessly, and so he changes his original decision. He throws that servant into prison, uh, and before, or until, rather, he pays off the debt. And then here's how Jesus summarizes the lesson. Look at Matthew 18, verse 35. Matthew 18, verse 35 says, So also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. So if we want to understand what Paul is saying in Romans about pursuing peace, I think forgiveness is the place to begin. Because very few of us are comfortable right now. This tells us that this is the place that we have to begin to understand what does it mean to pursue peace. In Romans chapter 12, which we covered again back in January, Paul gave us some parameters for pursuing peace. And I think this is really healthy, really helpful for us to understand what are the boundaries of peacekeeping, if you will. He said back in Romans 12, verse 18, if possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. If possible, as far as it is with you. So those are the parameters that he gives us. I think what Jesus is getting at then about forgiveness is that forgiveness is always possible. Why? Because it depends on your heart. It simply depends on you. Forgiveness is a work, Jesus says, if you notice in the latter half of that verse that we just read, 35, is from your heart. 
and so we should always forgive. But usually, this takes time. To really forgive somebody is not an instant moment. It is a process. But what is that process? Because if you're anything like me, usually my process of forgiveness, without consulting the scriptures, is just ruminating in frustration and trying to find someone who will absolve me of my frustration, who agrees with me, right? That that person is the one who should do something first, and I have nothing to do, right? Well, the scriptures redirect our hearts, and so we should simply ask, what is forgiveness? What is the pathway that we ought to take? The first thing that I think we see in Jesus' story is that forgiveness is agreeing to pay a debt. Forgiveness is agreeing to pay a debt. See, in Jesus' story, the master lended this servant some money in some way. And by forgiving him, the master is agreeing to pay that. In other words, the debt doesn't just disappear. The master is agreeing to not be made whole in this situation. In other words, he's agreeing to shoulder the burden that was meant to be carried by the servant. And then when it comes to then our relationships, I think one of the most important steps that we rarely, I think, take time to do, I know I do, don't take enough time, is to name the offense. To name it. In fact, just this week I was in a meeting where somebody from our congregation reminded me it is so important to name the debt, the hurt, the pain, to give language to it. We have to name it. After all, we cannot forgive a debt if we don't know what it is. If we don't take enough time to narrow down what in the world is it that has actually been done. More to the point, the first step in pursuing peace and forgiveness is to identify the debt or the conflict or the need that we have for peace. And I usually need somebody's help in this. In fact, last night, Laura and I had a long conversation after the kids went to bed, because that's usually when long, productive conversations actually happen. We're not tired or anything, so it's always wisdom that comes out of those conversations right? But ultimately, what I needed help was actually naming what I was frustrated with, naming what it was, and I didn't, I needed her help to sort of poke and ask questions and think with me, and so we almost always need each other to help put language or to name the actual offense. As with last week then, as we begin to learn to do this, our, our, our cosmic forgiveness, so the way that God has forgiven us, really helps us to understand how to do this, Paul told the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 19, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, which is a beautiful text and a wonderful thing. But notice, God does count the trespasses. The brilliance of this is not that he is overlooking the trespasses, it's that he's not counting them, what? Against us, against them. He is counting them. But the miracle of grace is that he doesn't count it against us. And how could he do that? Well, It's because the father was counting those sins against his son. He was taking those debts and he was placing them upon his son. In other words, the nature of forgiveness, our cosmic forgiveness, is a God who names our sin and agrees to pay the debt for us. That's forgiveness. Therefore, you and I, because of the way that we have been forgiven and the way our spiritual debt has been made whole in Christ, We are empowered and able, given a pathway, if you will, to how to name sin and to shoulder that burden of debt. But forgiveness is even more than that, I think. I think there's more going on in Jesus' story. Forgiveness is also finding a new way to see a sinner. This is really hard for me again. Remember I told you I'm in process with this? This is just going to be probably more than you desire. But it's really difficult because I love naming the sin and saying, okay, I'll shoulder it, but I still see you as that person who lies. 
I still see you as that person who hurt me. I still see you. And so what, what forgiveness also is, is finding a new way to see a sinner. See, when the master extended forgiveness to the servant, he could no longer and was no longer looking at him as a debtor. He was saying, you're free. You're free. You're relieved of this. I no longer see you in that way. And the father no longer sees us as sinners. The psalmist says in Psalm 103, for as high as the heavens and as are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love towards those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. He no longer sees you through your sin. See, because of the burden of sin has been transferred to Christ through forgiveness, he no longer sees us as sinners or as enemies. He sees us as what? Daughters and sons. Daughters and sons. God even tells the prophet Jeremiah, for I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. The beauty of the gospel is that while God remembers you, he does not remember your sin. He sees you as his child, not through the lens of shame and guilt and brokenness and death and darkness, but as his beloved. This is forgiveness. So what's this look like for us? Yale professor Miroslav Wolf has been really instrumental in my understanding of forgiveness, particularly through his book, Free of Charge, in which he explains that the practice of forgiveness is the practice of detaching the doer from the deed. This is hard work because sin is very sticky, isn't it? And my concept of you and your concept of me, it's really sticky. I just go, that's how Jason always is. He always acts like that. That's just who he is. That's his personality. He's Enneagram too. He does that kind of stupid stuff all the time, right? We see each other through our shortcomings and our sin. We don't even realize we're doing it. And so what, what we must do in forgiveness is learn to detach the doer from the deed. And here's how we do this. We begin to look at forgiveness, not as just something that we do for our sake, but as a gift we give to the other for their good. This is a fundamental shift in the cultural view or a society at large's view of forgiveness and ours. I was even reading new research this week that the New York Times was reporting on about forgiveness. It was a fascinating study, but it all had to do with the mental health and well-being of the one doing the act of forgiving, which is not wrong. But the scriptures tell us there's so much more to it that we don't just do it for our good, we do it for the good of the other. For the good of our sister, our brother, our neighbor. See, forgiveness is pursuing peace and refusing to see the person who has sinned against us through their sin or even as their sin. Wolf says this, Wolf says this, to forgive means to release the condemned wrongdoer, not just from punishment, but from guilt. From guilt. No longer holding this over you and this isn't defining our relationship anymore. It's a gift I'm freely giving. See, in our hearts, we do this work of detaching the doer from the deed. It's seeing your neighbor not as a manipulator, not as a liar, not as selfish, but as someone who bears the image of God. It's learning to see your mom and your dad not as the person who is absent from your childhood, not as the person who was constantly blaming you all the time for their shortcomings. It's to see them as one for whom Christ died. It's looking even at our children, not through whatever recent spat or pattern of sin that they have, but as a gift that they are from God. We are detaching the doer from the deed. They may never confess that sin. They may never have any kind of consequence. They may, may never repent, but you actually can still forgive them. 
I can actually still forgive them. See, within, you, within your heart and mind, by the power of the Spirit, and with great sin over time and counseling and community, you can name the sin, you can shoulder the burden, and you can do the work of detaching the doer from the deed in your heart. You can forgive. Church, God in Christ has forgiven you that way. You can forgive. You have been given that in Christ. Perhaps, though, this is all you can do. Perhaps that's as far as you can pursue peace. Perhaps this is as far as you can say that this is what depends on me. This is what is possible with some people and in some situations. Nevertheless, the scriptures are clear. If that's as far as you're able to go, you have pursued peace. You have done as best as you possibly could. See, in Jesus' story of forgiveness, forgiveness is actually the only amount of peace that's achieved. You notice that? Why? There's no reconciliation. There's no restoration. How do we know this? Because there's no repentance. There's no true repentance. This didn't change the behavior of the servant. The servant went and lived the exact same way that they did before the great gift or the absolvement or the forgiveness that the master gave. So proverbially, what we understand is that forgiveness only requires one person. It only requires you. It only requires me, the work in my heart. But reconciliation and restoration always includes two, at least. It always includes two. This is why it may not be possible for you. This is perhaps why it may not be something that you are able to do, because it takes two people. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus addressed the power of reconciliation. He was actually teaching about anger. Um, and he does this throughout the sermon. But what, what he does here with anger is he reframes the law a particular law around the heart. So he takes what maybe is just a legalistic view of the law and he reframes it around the heart. And in this case, he actually explains that the commandment to not murder, actually, uh, when it is reframed around the heart, is not simply about not killing somebody, but it's about not harboring bitterness toward your neighbor or towards someone else. He says in Matthew chapter 5, so if you are offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there at the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift. Notice, we're considering this from a different vantage point. Not as the one who needs to give forgiveness, but from the perspective of someone who needs to ask for forgiveness. And if we want to grow in forgiveness, it is really important that we realize in different situations and seasons and relationships, we're on both sides of the equation. Right? That there are some times when I need to forgive and there are some times when I need to extend forgiveness. Presumably the brother then, in Jesus' situation, or the way that he's telling this, the brother knows that he's been sinned against. And so reconciliation is possible. Remember, reconciliation requires two people. So what Jesus is describing here is repentance. He's saying, leave your gift and go and repent. When we sin against someone, we should not just simply name that sin, but we should live differently as a result. That's repentance. Repentance, then, is the thing that makes reconciliation possible. If we do not have repentance, reconciliation cannot take place. This is why sometimes all we can do is forgive, if there's no repentance. But the beauty of that is I can be freed. I can forgive even if the person who has committed a sin against me is not repentant. So what exactly is reconciliation? Reconciliation is the practice of bringing back together, through repentance and through forgiveness, two people who had been separated by sin. It's bringing back together. It rejoins what was previously harmonious. It's friends being friends again. It's lovers being lovers again. It's family being family again. It's being restored. And like forgiveness, reconciliation 
uh, flows out of our experience that God has reconciled us. And one of my favorite storylines in the entire Bible is Peter, because you see his development. And so the same guy that's like, yo, can I just forgive seven times? Is that cool? Later on, here's what he writes. 1 Peter chapter 3, for Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. That's your cosmic reconciliation. The cross makes reconciliation possible with God. It retrieves us from the curse of sin and death and brokenness and chaos and confusion, and it retrieves the harmony of the garden. Therefore, guilty sinners like you and me can be brought back to God, but this is only enacted through repentance. We have to repent. We have to confess our sin and know that he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. See, when we repent of our sins and believe in the work of Jesus, reconciliation, only then are we brought back to God. It requires both of us. We are reconciled with him. This leads us then to be a people who know and who practice reconciliation. And this is what Jesus does next in Matthew 18. So if you're still there, we'll move back to verse 15. Before Peter's question, Jesus has just taught on reconciliation. He has just taught on uh, repentance and this idea. And really, it's one of the most practical texts anywhere in the scriptures. It lays out for us three steps for reconciliation. Three steps. He gives us three ways that we're meant to seek reconciliation and pursue peace beyond simply forgiving someone. Step one, Jesus says, talk to the person who sinned against you. Look at verse 15. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained a brother. This tells us that through forgiveness, or rather though forgiveness is an inward work of God's spirit in our hearts, in most cases, we should address those who have sinned against us directly and give them a chance to repent and give reconciliation a chance. We should give a chance to be brought back together. Step two, Jesus says, because many of us have tried that and it didn't work. So thanks be to God, Jesus knows that. So step two, He goes on verse 16. Look at it, Matthew 18 still. But if he does not listen to you, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. In other words, if they don't believe you or they don't repent, if it doesn't work, if you cannot make headway with this person, it is right and good and biblical to bring others in your community and say, hey, I'm having a hard time. I I cannot find reconciliation with this person. Here's what what happened. What is your wisdom for me? Would you come with me? Have you observed this kind of behavior from them? Have you been hurt the same way as they hurt me? Have you had this experience? We're supposed to corroborate with others about this behavior and then go again in humility to try to establish reconciliation. Still, if this doesn't happen, the third step, Jesus says, tell the church. Now, this may mean tell the elders of the church, or it may mean make their sin a public matter, make their sin a matter of the community. Jesus says in verse 17, if he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Now, Jesus isn't throwing shade here. He's not, he's not saying treat them like bad people. He's saying treat them like people who don't know the gospel of reconciliation because they're not living as if they do. In other words, preach the gospel to them. Reach out to them. They obviously are not coming to you with the same terms and same understanding. And so they are 
perhaps not a brother or sister yet, so they sh you should treat this like a mission. He's saying preach the gospel of reconciliation to those who don't live it out. See, what Jesus is getting at here then when it comes to reconciliation is that when we've been sinned against, we should not just make a passing attempt at bringing restitution, about bringing reconciliation and making an opportunity for repentance, right? We shouldn't just text them and say, you did a bad thing. All right, I tried, right? Or even just go, God, will that work out? I have peace that that won't work out, so I'm not going to go talk to them. Now, there are certainly places in the scriptures where it is not safe for somebody to go on their own or directly to the person who has hurt them. Deuteronomy 22 gives us great instruction when there is egregious, abusive behavior that someone who has been a victim of that kind of perpetrating sin should not go by themselves or perhaps at all to the one who has hurt them. This is why this is a general statement, a general understanding of seek, seeking reconciliation and not something we should be militant about, about no matter what accusations brought. See, what Paul was saying is that we pursue peace. We pursue what makes for peace. And this is really hard work. Jesus gives us three steps. I wish it was just forgive them and move on. They're just not your people, right? That feels nice to me. They can go to a different church. They can go to a different group. They can move on. It's fine. Let's not even worry about it. Am I preaching to you? I mean, this is just, I would, that feels good to me. This is hard work. This is really hard work. It's exposing. Matthew 18 gives us a lot of clarity about what it means to really walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which we have been called. What the pathway of not just forgiveness, but of reconciliation ought to look like. I think this also tells us that if we're on the other side of this, if someone comes to us and says, hey, you hurt me, it's really easy to be defensive, be misunderstood, that's not okay. We're supposed to be humble and listen to what they have to say. And we should not invent things to repent of, but we should be ready and ask the Holy Spirit, what is it that you would have me repent of? What is it? What's the truth here that I need to hear? Instead of trying to justify ourselves, which I know I'm constantly have an impulse to do, we're supposed to humble ourselves and listen to our accuser so that we can win a brother or a sister back. So we should think deeply about this, what the Holy Spirit has to say to us. All this to say, though, we haven't still reached full restoration. See, reconciliation is this category that the scriptures give us where not everything is perfectly fine and whole yet. See, forgiveness shoulders a burden of sin and it frees the doer from the deed. Reconciliation brings people back together again through repentance, but sometimes even after forgiveness, even after reconciliation, things are not exactly as they were before the sin. You see, even after forgiveness and restoration, friends may be friends again, but not in the same way. Lovers may be lovers again, but there may now be limits in intimacy and limits introduced to their relationship that weren't there previously. Family might be family again, but you have a fresh set of boundaries that you are putting up. That's still reconciliation. That's still coming back together, but it's not full restoration. Does the difference make sense? I think it's really critical. There is a healthy and loving way for a church to reconcile and yet reframe the relationship in a way that makes sense, that is healthy and helpful for everybody. But restoration still hasn't been achieved. See, reconciliation doesn't mean that everything is exactly as it was. It doesn't even mean, this is so important, it doesn't mean that people, everybody keeps their jobs. Reconciliation does not mean that everybody stays put in where they were and everything is okay. Reconciliation is not the absence of consequence. Not the absence of consequence. This is the lie I think that countless churches have and do believe when their spiritual leaders sin egregiously. And we have naively 
I think, believe that forgiveness and reconciliation mean that no consequences are necessary. Well, it seems like they forgave and everything is okay. No, consequences often need to be a new normal in order to promote safety and health within relationships that were, uh, have experienced harm. Regretfully, even, then many abusive pe preachers, people in my field, remain in their pulpits to this day because I think as a church we have been cowardice in our practice of seeking forgiveness, which is void of real justice. That's not what the scriptures teach us. What they teach us, though, is there is this other way. There is this third way, if you will. Another level of peace is possible. See, sometimes restoration actually is possible. Relationships can become even more than they were previously. Relationships can enjoy complete restoration where consequences don't redefine the relationship. But let me say this from the outset, that this is, again, really hard work. It is very rare, and it is not always possible. But I think sometimes we believe that only restoration proves that we've forgiven and that we've reconciled, and that's not true. There's a lot of stuff that we all still have with each other that might look a little different than it did four years ago, and that's okay. We can have peace. One day, Jesus is going to sort out a lot of leftover stuff we haven't figured out how to resolve yet. Can I get an amen? That's really good news for me, right? That means that the only thing that holds us together is not everybody is cool. We're all fine, and we have nothing to work through anymore. No, it means that we're forgiving each other, we're reconciling. We may have to redraw the lines of relationship, but we are still in this together. We're still a real family. We're still a real spiritual community that grows even as we all use our gifts together, even though it causes tension. So what is restoration? Well, in a series of lessons about losing something, Jesus talks about a lost son. Perhaps you're familiar with the story. Son comes to a dad and says, essentially, I wish you were dead. Give me all of my money that I'm supposed to get when you're dead. And the father gives him that money. The son goes to the far-off country, Jesus says, and he spends all that money on lavish living. One point, he comes to his sense, and he's like, I need to go home. I, mostly because I've run out of money, but I'm also eating animal food, and I'm completely humiliated. I need to go back home. And so like any of us, perhaps in our teen years, begins to rehearse a story as he's getting close to home, going, how can I explain everything that I've done for the past number of years, right? All right, mom and dad, this is what actually happened. This is where I was going. Please, can I come home? And can I maybe eat something because I'm hungry, right? So the son actually rehearses his, his speech. And in Luke chapter 15, verse 18 and 20, or 18 and 19, we're given sort of a window into his soul. He says, uh, I will arise and go to my father and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. What's he saying? The best I can hope for is forgiveness and reconciliation. I, I, the best I can hope for is my dad will welcome me home, but I, I can't be his son anymore. We have to redraw the lines of relationship, and I have to be a servant now. So the best he's hoping for is that he'll get, be forgiven and that they can reconcile. So he's ready to repent. He's not only willing to name his sin, but also to address that he has hurt God and he has hurt his father. But he's not expecting restoration. He thinks that's too much to shoot for. He thinks that's too high, too lofty. He expects a type of reconciliation in which family is family again, but with new boundaries that are set in place to provide safety and accountability. Son's not wrong in this. He's pursuing peace. He's acknowledging his sin. He's asking for forgiveness. He's repenting. He's asking for reconciliation, but he's not asking for complete restoration. 
a return without limits, refreshed relationships, perhaps even a new and better normal. You see, I think an important lesson is being communicated here. The offender never gets to initiate restoration. The one who has been offended is the one who has that kind of power. Restoration has to be initiated by the one who has been hurt. That's exactly what the father does. Jesus continues the story. The father sees his son coming at a distance, right? Instead of waiting for him, if you know the story, you know he runs toward him. And as his son begins to bring up his rehearsed speech, right, of telling him, hey, here's all I've done. I'm sorry. Can I just be, you know, can I just have a job? Will you just welcome me back as one of your servants? Luke 15, verse 22, reads this way. The father said to his son, or rather to his servants, bring quickly the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate for this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found and they began to celebrate. In other words, as the son is saying, hey, can we just have reconciliation? The father cuts him off to plan his restorative party to plan his party of restoration. See, what was lost was fully retrieved and completely restored. That's restoration. Now, we can be misled by Jesus' story to think, oh, this is really quick. Father sees him, restoration. It's really light work. And so this is where I think one of the places that we err as a church, we go, that's forgiveness. This is what we're always supposed to do. We're be one big happy family again. Maybe not. We will have joy. We will be ultimately have peace in the Lord, but it may not look exactly the same. Because, I mean, let's think about it. Imagine with me just for a second. Fast forward a little bit. Can you imagine the next time this son asks for money? That's going to be awkward. He's like, hey, I ran out of money again, and I know last time it went bad real quick. The father is going to have to have a gut check in that moment to really think about, shoot, am I going to give him money again? See, restoration is not quick and easy. It comes up, doesn't it? It comes up again. This is a constant habit that we have to learn to be in. Can you imagine the next night that the father doesn't sleep well for whatever reason, and then he's triggered and brought back to all those sleepless nights that he had no idea if his son was dead or alive? He was going to have to wake up that next morning and choose restoration again and again and again and again. Restoration is not a switch that we flip. I assure you there are things that we will be working on for years, if not decades. And so be gentle with yourself. Be gentle with each other. Allow the peace and the patience of Jesus to invade your soul and those in our community. See, like forgiveness and reconciliation, restoration is not a simple moment in time, but a practice of naming sin, shouldering the burden afresh, paying debts, rebuilding trust, coming back together, resetting limits, choosing to continually seek and pursue peace as best as we possibly can. Because, you know, ultimately that story that Jesus told isn't even about us. At least the Father's willingness to restore the relationship is not about us. It's about his heavenly Father. See, rather the Father's portrayal of love and willingness to restore what was lost is the Heavenly Father's response toward you and me when we had our stories ready to tell him. And in fact, when we come back to him after our fresh encounter with sin and saying, I did it again, 
I snapped back at my colleagues. I chose anger again. I looked at porn again. I lied again to my children. I used manipulation instead of trust and love. And we come back to the Father, don't we? And we say, I know, you've got to redraw the lines, God. I'm not worthy to come back and be your daughter. I'm not worthy to come back and be your son. Can you just let me be back on the team? Can I just, have a, can I just be a servant? See, restoration, even in our own souls, takes a long time, doesn't it? So we can be gentle with ourselves when it's hard with our brothers and sisters. This is what the Father is saying to you. This is what the Father is saying to me. And the more familiar we are with the restorative, forgiving, and reconciliation work of Jesus, I think the more empowered, the more we understand and comprehend what it looks like to be a community who practices these things. See, Jesus is saying... This is precisely what the Heavenly Father has done for you. When we thought all we could have was forgiveness, when we thought all we could have was reconciliation, he gives us full and complete restoration. It's a complete expression of shalom. And I think pursuing peace means that we have to realize that we are not going to experience the fullness of shalom in this life. And that is perhaps one of the hardest truths of all. The Lord promises shalom one day, but he doesn't promise it in this age. As much as we pursue peace, you will always be hungry for more. I will always be hungry for more. And that's really hard to navigate. To navigate how much of that longing for peace is because of my sin or this person's sin. How much of it is because I need Jesus to show up now and just bring this back together again. See, as followers of Jesus, we learn to hunger and thirst for this righteousness, for this shalom, knowing that one day shalom will be perfectly restored. Mercy and love and power will rule and reign on earth as it already rules and reigns in heaven. And so, in fact, I think through these dispositions and practices of peace, we should learn to long for the kingdom to come. The weariness that we feel in pursuing peace should make us long more and more for Jesus' coming kingdom. He promises in Revelation 21, a day is coming when God will be with us and we will be with him. When there will be no more tears, no more death, no more lament, no more pain, no more not yet, no more sin, no more need to forgive, no more need to reconcile, no more need to reset boundaries, no more need to define the relationship, no more need to pursue peace. Why? Because all we'll know is restoration. All we'll know is shalom. All we'll know is peace and wholeness and completion and joy. And so between now, or rather then and now, we need to ask ourselves, who do we need to forgive? To who do I need to ask for forgiveness? With whom do I need to seek reconciliation? With whom do I need to be restored? Because what the people of God do is we get anxious for that day to come. And so we learn to make peace now. That's what that hopefulness does. But it takes time, it takes community, it takes over and over again learning the shalom that God has provided to us. So let's pray and ask for God's help in this. Heavenly Father, in some respects, we don't even know where to begin because there are people in our lives we do not want to forgive. I do not want to forgive. 
there are people I do not want to be reconciled with because it feels like it will justify them. There are people I don't want to be restored with. I just want to be away from them. And so we need your help. We need your spirit's liberating work to help us to know how far ought we pursue peace. If forgiveness is all we are able to do, if that's all that is possible, would you give us peace in simply forgiving and detaching the doer from the deed? But if you desire reconciliation, Father, give us wisdom to know how it is that we should be brought back together to our brother, our sister, our neighbor, our spouse, and our friend. And if it's restoration that you desire, would you help us to go further to understand what it's like to be made whole in a relationship where consequence and limitation no longer set the limits, but only your joy and your goodness and your grace. We need your help. We need your healing. And we ask for that in Jesus' name. Amen.